All right, let's jump into the Word, um, and uh, we're going to pick up where we were, where we've been going through. If you've been coming, you already know, so uh, we are working through and following the thread of God through His Word, really. Learning to see God by looking straight through His Word. And again, I say it all the time, there's Bibles back there, there are different kinds of Bibles there are Hispanic Bibles, there are CSB translation, there's ESV, which is the one I use. Someday I'll talk to you more about the different translations, but that's not the point. The point is there are Bibles back there, so take one, use one, give one away. Uh, I promise you there are people that need them, and I promise you I have plenty. So don't feel weird about that. Take them, use them. Um, and keep them with you. So anyway, we're following the story of God chronologically through his word, seeing God through the lens of his word and trying to see uh, what we can learn more about him from what his word says. We're going from cover to cover, not covering everything, but chronologically. So we've talked about creation. We've talked about him creating Adam and Eve. We've talked about how sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. We talked about, most importantly, in that moment where God said, that there would be a seed of woman, there would be a child, a seed of woman who would destroy the works of the devil, who would uh, redeem creation, who would uh, change things back to the paradise that God had created it in a sense, restore relationship of man to woman. And when you begin to see that seed, that promise get more clear and more clear and more clear as we walk through his word. Now remember, we're reading quote stories but these are people's lives like these things happen these people actually went through and lived through these things so this seed continues to be trans transferred from family to family down to the flood through the flood in noah and then down to abraham and abraham is where we've been kind of camped and god promised abraham he'd have a kid and where we're going to jump in today abraham has had this child that is promised to him his name's isaac and the question that kind of lands today is, would God really ask that? You may say, ask what? You're going to see. But just in general, whatever that is, would God really ask that? Could it be that you've been faithful to God? You, you've kept his word. You've been completely faithful. You've, you've been good. You've been peaceful. And you expect that life then is now going to be peaceful and everything's going to be good. And then you get shocked shocked when something unexpected and difficult comes your way. When something rough or some kind of struggle happens and you think, well, Satan must be attacking. And I don't know, maybe he is, I don't know. But the real question is, would God allow that? Much less would God want it. But what if, what if, let's read it. Look at Genesis chapter 22, look at verse 2. It says, God speaking, saying to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I'll show you. Verse 6 says, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and took took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son, and he said, behold, the fire... And the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Let me pray. Lord, your word is awesome. Again, Lord, I I, I sit underneath it. 
You're the teacher. Your word speaks, not me. I thank you for the privilege of holding the microphone, standing uh, where I'm standing. But God, I, I yield that entire thing to you. It's your stage. It's your church. It's your mic. It's your word. Um, and I praise your voice. And I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So in 1928, a company was launched uh, that became famous, all of you know it, but in 1972, they introduced a television commercial that made them super famous, the candy company, and in the commercial, this phrase became huge, you got your chocolate in, anybody know it? My peanut butter, right. You got your chocolate and my peanut butter. You got your peanut butter and my chocolate. You can go back and look at it. And then they all, the both of them look like, oh, shocked, like, wow, like, this was amazing. This was genius. Molly's laughing at me because she knows I'm about to pick on her in two seconds. So, <laughs> so the whole idea that chocolate and peanut butter would be good together, you know, wow, who would have thought? But obviously it is. And uh, Molly had a similar moment when we first moved here because we went to a place in Phoenix uh, or in Scottsdale. They had one here in Tempe, but it's gone now called Rehab Burger. And uh, they're famous for their PB&J burger. So they tried to get her to, to, she ordered a cheeseburger, and the server said, hey, try the PB&J burger. And she said, well, I was thinking about it because I love peanut butter, but I just can't imagine that's good. And he was like, I'll get it for you. If you don't like it, I'll pay for it, and then I'll go down to Burger King and get you a cheeseburger. That's what the server said. So she got it. She tried it. I still have the picture. Like I was taking the picture of her as she's eating it and she's biting into it and it's oozing all down her hands and she's going, like she can't even say the words. She's so moved by how good it is. And now it's her favorite. She still talks about it, still tries to tell people to go get the PB&J burger. Anyway, they've become more popular. But whether it's burgers or, or candy, it's like the old line, just when you think you know something, (laughs) you know, somebody comes along and changes the whole game. Now, what we're talking about today is far from candy bars. It's not silly at all. However, there's a point being made in scripture here. And if we're honest, it may make us question how well we know the Lord. Not question the Lord. I'm not saying not question him necessarily, but maybe like just when you think you know him, you read something like this. And then if you're honest You might ask, would God really do that? Like, would he really do that? So I want you to ask yourself as we look at it today, what might God ask me to sacrifice in order to display his son in my life? What might God ask me to sacrifice in order to display his son in my life? So if you grab a sheet back there, you already know, but there's a a little kind of one-sentence statement that helps, helps us all stay on the same page at what we're looking at today. And so it's this. Though we may face seemingly impossible tests, we should always be looking for the way that God is using those moments to display his son in the world through us for his glory, not our praise. All right, so let's get in and you'll see it. Verse 1. After these things, I'm in chapter 22 of Genesis, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Or yes, Lord, you can see it however you want to look at it. But he says, after these things. After what things? Well, it could be the last chapter. I won't read it. It could be the last two chapters. You can go back. I mean, it could be those things. But I think this is pointing to all the things where Abraham and God have connected. Point being that this is not the first time God suddenly showed up in Abraham's life and is about to ask something epic. This is after he's 
they, you know, God's led him to a foreign land. God's appeared to him multiple times. God's appeared to him in visions, and I believe very literally as well. God's given him promises. God's made a covenant with him. God's rescued him in a war. God's giving him land. God's given him a son from a barren wife in her 90s. So God has done amazing things already, and yet God, this, this is what I've been wrestling with all week, God's still testing him. Like, man, Lord, don't you think Abraham has done enough to prove who he is to you as if he is ha- it proven as well? But what does this tell you about God? Don't think about Abraham. Remember, we're looking at God. What does this tell you about God? Just because you pass a test or a struggle doesn't mean there won't be more. Doesn't mean there won't be more. One thing I'm sure of in this Christian life is we never arrive. Am I right? You know what? We never arrive because God, now I'm going to tell you why. Because God, now that, not to say when we get to heaven, I'm talking about this life. Because God has one plan, one motivation, one goal, one strategy, and that's to display his son in our lives. That's it. To display his son in our lives. And to truly accurately do that is going to require struggle. Suffering, trials at the least. What did Jesus, what was Jesus' life like? How did it finish? You know, and, and this test, by the way, is that we're going to look at is for Abraham, not God. It's for Abraham, it's not for God because you think, I mean, for, for one, God didn't need to know anything. But tests are not for teachers. Maybe you're a teacher and you know this. Tests are not for teachers, they already know. Tests are for you, so you'll know. Teachers already can tell you who the flunkies are and who aren't. They see your homework. They know. Uh, it's, the, it's the student that needs to know, hey, let me make you aware of where you really are. Take this test and find out. So another thing, too, God's not testing Abraham's obedience here. He's not testing his loyalty here. He's testing his faith here, his trust. Do you really trust me, Abraham? Do do you really know me? I mean, all this time we've talked, all these years that we've been talking and doing all this thing, do you you really know me? Okay, if you really know me, now do you really trust me? Do you really trust me? What Abraham didn't know is that God's about to paint a picture of his son, the seed, that would redeem all of creation for all of history, and this moment would be remembered for thousands and thousands of years. We're talking about it today. In fact, because it's in God's word, you could argue it will be remembered eternally. But, I mean, would you do it if, if you knew it was going to be remembered eternally or whatever? But remember, now, Abraham doesn't know that. Abraham doesn't know that. All he knows is God is saying, do you trust me? I gave you the child, miraculously. Now he's grown up to a young man. Your bond is super tight. But Abraham... Do you trust me even with the boy? Even with the boy. So verse 2, he said, take. That's a command, not a request. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go or walk to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. He says only son. 
We know he had Ishmael, but you can go back and read that story. God's plan was only for Isaac, so that's why he's only recognizing Isaac here. God emphasized Isaac's place in Abraham's heart, almost intentionally making this harder. Look what he's saying. Like, your son, your only son, whom you love. Why would God do that? Is he just being hateful? This command is unbelievable, by the way. A burnt offering. He didn't say just go sacrifice him. A burnt offering. you got to understand what that means. It means that after Abraham pierces his son with this knife and takes his life in that way, he's going to light the thing on fire and there will be nothing left of Isaac. He's going to completely, he's being told to completely sacrifice, burn it all. Isaac is completely destroyed. Other offerings, for instance, or sacrifices might have involved fire. But you could typically keep some part of it, like the animal that you took or whatever, you, you could eat it, or that, you'd sacrifice part of it, but not all of it. But in this, in the case of a burnt offering, it's all burned. So it's complete death, complete sacrifice. You get nothing out of it, nothing back. Complete death, complete sacrifice. That's what he tells them to do. He also gives them a destination in part. He says, the land of Moriah and to a mountain I'll show him. We know where that is. So, Abraham was around the place of Beersheba, which is in the south, and he hikes about 50 miles. They walk about 50 miles north to get to where this area is. And it would have been from a desert where Beersheba is up into the mountains to get to where this was. It had been a pretty good hike and up. And we know where it is. I can give you several places, but just one example is in Second Chronicles 3, verse 1. It says, Solomon began to build the house or the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, where? On Mount Moriah. So where was this mountain that he was taking him to? Jerusalem, to where the temple is. Now that didn't exist. Is years later that the temple gets built on top of that mountain. That Jerusalem as a city is founded on top of that mountain. But, in fact, the world's major religions have fought over this piece of land... Since the time of Christ, the Jews built this temple there, of course, in 900 B.C. We just talked about it. I got a picture of an idea. Nobody knows exactly what it looks like, but based on descriptions, maybe it looked something like that. It was destroyed by Babylon in 586 B.C. Nehemiah rebuilt it. Uh, Herod dramatized it with more and more. And then in 70 AD Rome demolished it and left only a foundation there but this would have been the spot where Abraham and Isaac had their moment uh the muslims believe it was Abraham and Ishmael in fact they 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 think the event occurred they just don't believe it was Isaac they believe it was Ishmael and that Muhammad ascended to heaven from this spot not died but went on a visit to heaven and I've heard Christians mock that all the time but before you race to mock that remember Paul said that he went on a trip to heaven too so don't, don't race to mock other people's faith just because it seems silly to you. If you be honest with your own faith, there's some things in it that others might think is really silly. So in any event, though, that's what the Muslims believe, the same spot. Uh, but remember the thing with the Muslims, they didn't co- that faith did not come along until Muhammad in the early 600s A.D. So hundreds of years after the events of Christ and whatnot occurred that, that uh, Muhammad himself founded this faith. And then in the late 600 A.D., they conquered, after, Muslim, I mean, after Muhammad had passed away, they conquered Jerusalem, 
And then they built on that spot the Dome of the Rock, which I think I had a picture of that. That's still there. I, I took that picture myself. So that's still there today in the same spot on that foundation where that temple was. Because And, it, and you can't go inside that dome unless you're a faithful Muslim. But if you go in there, you can see pictures. You can Google and see pictures. The only thing in there is that rock exposed, which they believe is the rock or the place where Abraham sacrificed, they believe, Ishmael. For Christians, though, here's the ticket. I say all that to say this. For Christians, here's the deal. It's less about the temple. It's less about the dome, for sure. It's less about Abraham and Isaac. It's less about Abraham and Ishmael, even if that were the case, which it's not. The point of this is to display Christ. The point of it is to display Christ. In fact, the temple being built there was to draw everyone's eyes to that spot. To that spot, the whole point of the temple sacrifices was to draw all sacrifices to that spot. Why that spot? Well, that's the point. It was on that mountain where God himself would walk. Jesus would come. He, Jesus, God himself would be the sacrifice on that rock, on that same mountain. And he would ascend to heaven on that same mountain, not on a visit, but as the conquering king of all creation. As the king of kings and lord of lords, the king of heaven returning in victory, it would happen on that spot. The whole point is Christ. Abraham doesn't even have a clue about that at the moment, though. Look back in verse 3, chapter 22 of Genesis. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took his two men, or took two of his young men, not children, just because it says young, our brain wants to jump into kid land. It's not, they're not kids, they're young men uh, with him and his son Isaac. Maybe these two young men were friends with Isaac because they're probably about his age. Isaac also was not a child. Break your mindset of that in a moment. Uh, and he cut the wood or prepared it for the burnt offering and arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, so he he goes to Moriah. He knows where Moriah is. He just doesn't know the mountain. But on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Don't know how God identified it, but in some way, he becomes aware this is the spot. But here you begin to see something else very important. You know, we're following the seed. Here's something else very important now we're following too. What is it? Any words jump out at you in there on what day? Third day. So you're going to see as we go through scripture, there's going to become this thread of the third day. It's going to get repeated over and over. All eyes on the third day. So as these generations of people lived, remember, we're reading a book here, but these are people's lives. So as all these generations live, they all are seeing this common thread of the third day. What's the big deal with the third day? Why is the third day a big day? Well, the day itself is not the event that would happen. On the third day was. What's the event that would happen on the third day? Christ's resurrection from the grave. Right. So. Then Abraham said to his young men. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. Or literally bow down. But don't miss this. And come again to you. Come again to you. Now he didn't tell him exactly what he was doing did he? Why not? They probably try to stop him. I agree with you, David. They probably going to try to stop him if he did that. Because look, people love it when you talk about worship. People might even respect you when you talk about worship. But if you start talking about sacrifice, then they start thinking you're radical or you're crazy or you're weird. And if you sacrifice a lot, then people start really judging you. 
And I remember uh, many of you guys, or some of you guys know I used to be in a band many, many years ago, uh, kind of a Christian rock band, and we traveled around the country, came here in the early 2000s, and, not to this building, obviously, but to Phoenix. And uh, we were with like skateboarders and bikers, and uh, we'd go in inner city and set up and do a concert and share the gospel. And usually it was hosted by a church. Sometimes it was a nonprofit like FCA or something. Most of the time it was a church. So the point was to plug kids or adults, I mean all kinds of people, but to plug whoever came, give them the gospel and plug them into a church. That was the whole point of the whole thing. Uh, and we saw so many, I didn't count hands, that's not my style, but we saw so many people come to Christ. And I shared the gospel each time. I wasn't the singer, but I was comfortable talking to people, so I was the one that shared the gospel. And, man, we saw so many people coming to Christ. But in 2005, on that particular tour, we were gone for like seven months, something like that. And uh, Molly was back in Tennessee, and the church, which is not, not the church we came here from, another church, uh, the church, there were people in the church that were really just starting to bash her. Like, why is your husband out playing rock star? Why ain't he at home? Why ain't he at home being a, a husband to you? You know, you really think God's pleased that he's out doing this and this, you know, even though people are coming to Christ. Now, if I was a Marine and I was deployed for a year, they would have been so proud of her husband. You know what I mean? And they should be. You know, they should be. And I'm not saying that to hate the those people, that was a long time ago. I'm just pointing out the fact that, you know, when you start talking about sacrifice, people start to get squirrely about that. Like, if you're worshiping, it's fine. But, And I think, my own personal opinion, I think that's guilt. Why are we not sacrificing like that? It's easier if nobody does. You're messing up the grading curve. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, let me get off that. Go back to verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. It keeps noting that, by the way. Same phrase, repeated. Abraham had amazing faith. 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 Abraham had amazing faith. Yes. Without a doubt. But he knew God. Like, he knew God, and he knew, listen, he knew if God promised him that child, If God promised him that child, then God at the very least had a plan with what he was asking here. And and we know that because Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, the author of Hebrews wrote this about Abraham. He said, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, this is what we're talking about, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. He was ready to do it. Of whom it was said, through Isaac, your son. Uh, excuse me, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead, which means figuratively he had already given him up. So he got him back, even though he didn't actually go through with it. You'll see that. But he, you see what he's saying? He's saying that his faith was so strong in God that he knew God had a plan for that child that even if he went through with that, God would raise him from the dead. Is that pointing to anything? It's all about trust, you know. I know him. I know he promised. I know he keeps his word. I know he does. So I know I can trust him. Listen, I know I can trust him even beyond death. That's the trick right here. I know him. I trust him. And I know I can trust him even beyond death. 
Even if death comes, I can trust him even there. Isaac wasn't a little boy, man. He was a young man at the very least here. He went willingly. This is important. And, and it's unfortunate that it's been passed off as some little kid for so long. It's not the case. It, it, it messes the whole picture up. He wasn't a little kid. He was a boy that was at least a young man in the sense that he was able to talk, walk, carry the wood, do the whole thing. Probably guessing based on the language used, he's probably in his young 20s. That's an assumption, but it's based on some study. Uh, either way, he's not a little boy. And he's carrying the wood, and he goes willingly because that wood is laid on him. Jesus carried his cross. That wood was laid on him on the same mountain, on the same spot. Jesus carried his cross. The Father went with Christ. And like a burnt offering, Jesus would face complete sacrifice, complete death. Verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold the fire, the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac says, my father. And, and here in this, it's, in this ESV, it's written, my father, with a big exclamation point. In our language, though, I, think it's, I don't think that's communicating well. If you look at the way it's written originally, it's really more like he's confused. But he's saying in a term of endearment. It's more like dad. Like, you know, dad? You know, hey, dad? Almost like he's suspecting something. You know, but not, not sure what. You know, like he's confused. He's speaking very personally to Abraham. Not in a formal father way. It's more like curious. Like, dad? Like, what's going on? In verse 8, Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together, again, twice. Abraham replies with the same heartfelt affection, my son. The same my father is the same there. It's, it's like, son, like I, I can't put myself in this moment to save my life. I can't do it. I'll be honest with you, I can't do it. I got a daughter who's grown up, obviously. I got a granddaughter now, not, you know. A few months old, I, I can't put my, I cannot put myself here. I can't do it. I, I would love to tell you my faith is so strong, and I, I, but I, I can't put myself here. I can't imagine what he must be going through. He calms his son down here. You know, he gives him some wisdom. Hey, God will provide the lamb. But inside, man, Abraham's heart has to be ripping apart. Even if he knows God could raise him from the dead, he's asking him to take his life and light it on fire. Like I, his heart must be ripping out inside, and he's what he's saying here is a very prophetic statement, and he doesn't know it. I don't. I'm, I'm certain he doesn't know it, but he doesn't realize what he's saying. That if you're looking in your Bible at verse eight, where it says God will provide for Himself the lamb for a burnt offering, if you are so inclined, you can strike out the word for because for is not actually in the original language. It originally, it says God will provide himself the lamb. God will provide himself the lamb. Now, you can argue that it translates fine for himself. But there's a word picture there that looks a little different, right? God provide, will provide himself the lamb. John 1, verse 29. John the Baptist the next day sees Jesus coming toward him and says what? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on Jesus, on him, the iniquity of us all, our sins. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that's for his shears of silence, so he opened not his mouth. God will provide himself the lamb. Look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, somehow... Again, making him aware. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, it jumps to that really quick, but let's just think about this moment for a while. You have these four people who have walked 50-plus miles together carrying wood and a knife, but no animal. Like, he took the time to get the wood. He didn't get it when they got there. He got it. and Like, he carried every. He had everything ready except the animal. Like, why, where are you going to find the animal at? Not going to buy it. Not just going to catch one. Like, no animal to sacrifice. Questions you know are circling in this little group of four. Exactly where are we going again? But they do find the place, according to Abraham. Because nobody else is hearing from God in this. And then just the two of them walk on, fire in hand now. Still no sacrifice. And they climb all the way up this hill, up on this mountain, until they reach this place. And now they build an altar of stones. However long that takes, still no sacrifice. What do you think is going through Isaac's head at this moment? I can't imagine he really has any idea until Abraham says, hold out your hands. Can you even imagine that? Hold out your hands. Again, Isaac was no little boy. He could have resisted. He could have run away. He could have said, dad's gone crazy. You know, but clearly... He trusted his father, and he trusted that his father knew God. You know, Isaac allowed himself to be bound, allowed himself to be placed on the altar. Jesus held out his hands, too. He said "There's to his father, if there's another way, please, but if not, your will be done. Stretched out his own hands. John 10, verse 18. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down in my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I've received from my father. He stretched out his hands. Look at verse uh, 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Literally means lifted. So the idea is his hand is up. He's ready to take this blade down onto his son, just like with Abraham at the cross. Listen to me, this is really important. It might mess with your theology, but it's reality. At the cross, the father sacrificed the son. Not the Jews, not the Romans, not even your sin. We like to say our sins put Jesus on, our sins killed Jesus. No, your sins kill you. Your sins kill you. The father killed the son for you. And before you think I'm just saying that out of left field, one of the strongest verses in the Bible, Isaiah 53, verse 10. It was the will of the Lord, all caps, proper name, Jehovah, to crush him. You want to know who killed Jesus, black and white, in his own word, the father did. The father did. You could look back at this and you could say, for Abraham so loved God. 
that he gave his only son. But unlike John 3.16, angel intervened with Abraham. Look at verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, stop, stop. Abraham said, here I am. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to harm him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've withheld nothing, not your son, your only son from me. Um, Now there, he says, now I know. Now is like a temporal adverb. Uh, I know that's fancy, but what basically I'm getting at here is it's not that God discovered something. It's not that God said, oh, okay, now I got it. It's not that. It's more like he's saying now at this time. In this moment, I know you fear me. In this moment, I know you fear me. God isn't learning what's in Abraham's heart. Uh, I, I could give you lots of verses, but one of the more famous ones, First Samuel 16, verse 7. The Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on what? The heart. So he knows. He already knows. God's saying, Abraham, stop. Stop. I know. Right now, in this moment, I know that you fear me, that you respect me, that you love me. I see that you've been faithful and offered to me what you love most. I see that. And he goes on to bless him again, but I'm not even going into that because the point of this is not about Abraham, not about Abraham's faith. It's not about any of that. The point of this is illustrating Jesus, the seed. It's not about Abraham's son. It's about God's son. That's what's going on here. Look in verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. I love that. That that Hebrew word, instead of, literally means underneath. Underneath. So he had taken, remember, Hebrew is a picture language. So he had taken his son and laid his son on the wood to light it. But now, imagery-wise, he put the ram underneath his son. Imagery, not literally. Isaac's not on the altar anymore now. The ram is. But the picture is of his son between the fire, or the ram, excuse me, between the fire and the son. It's a picture of intercession, of standing in between the wrath of the flame that's meant for the death of the man. And this ram now is doing it's a picture of substitutionary atonement. Big, huge word that centuries later, Moses would write down into the law. And Leviticus 16 is probably the most powerful example. But even millennia before that, the very first substitutionary atonement, that's a tough word, was in Eden, right? God did that for Adam and Eve. Jews and Muslims both claim that's the flaw in Christianity, that there's no such thing as substitutionary atonement, that you're responsible for your own thing. But the funny part is both of them offer sacrifices. So whether it's an animal sacrifice or what they claim their deeds, they're still hoping that those sacrifices are enough to offset their sin. Well, that's a substitute. You're hoping that these things will substitute for my level of sin. It's, it's the same thing. The difference with Christians is that we also believe in a substitute, but our substitute is God himself. And we know that's good enough. We know that's good enough. Verse 14, we're about done here. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, I love this, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Literally, it's he shall be provided. 
or even he shall be seen could be either one on the mountain of the Lord. He shall be provided or you could say on the mountain of the Lord. He shall be seen literally saying on this mountain on this place where I just did this. He will be seen. God, he will be provided on that. And that's exactly what happened. I don't think he knew that. So some claim there's a contradiction here. Like, why would God curse sacrificing children, which he most certainly does, and then yet turn around and ask one of his followers to do it? I've heard that argument a bunch of times. Well, two things I'd say. First of all, he didn't go through with it. God did not allow him to go through with it, first of all. Second of all, this is a one-time event in Scripture in order to point to another one-time event in Scripture, which is the cross. All right? But I like this. I don't know if you guys have ever read the Ragamuffin Gospel or what you think about it, but that, it was popular back in the early 2000s, a book written by a man named Brendan Manning who was a Catholic priest who got radically saved by grace and changed his whole perspective on things. Uh, but anyway, in it he says this. He's speaking as God in this, okay? So this is not scripture. I'm just reading his quote, but it's God speaking from his quote. He says, you don't know, God speaking, you don't know how much I love you. My words are written in the blood of my only son. Were you grieved by the command to Abraham that he slay his only begotten son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah? Were you relieved when the angel intervened and Abraham's hand was stayed and the sacrifice was not carried out? Have you forgotten that on Friday, no angel intervened? The sacrifice was carried out, and it was my heart that was broken. I think that's where we have to remember before we go racing to question God on what he's doing here. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Man, that we've turned that into a Christmas present. What does gave mean? You know, God is a trinity. Think about this. Father, Son, and Spirit. Like, they're united in some way we can't even fathom. Like, a a father-son relationship so vastly closer and tighter than anything ever on this earth. Infinitely more connected. And they went together. The son carrying the wood that's going to bring his own death. The father walking with him, knowing that in a moment, he himself would raise the nails. His son, his only son, whom he loves. You know, in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, if you've seen it, there's an amazing scene in there where you literally have the perspective of the father looking down at the cross and the screen goes blurry like water is filling his eye and then a teardrop falls out. I think that's the most powerful moment in movie. Um, so what do we do with this? Well, what might God ask you to sacrifice? In order to display his son in your life. And before you say, well, okay, I'll cancel Hulu for a while, that's not the same thing. You know, let's take it a little more serious. Luke 14, Jesus said that being a disciple will cost you everything and might even put you on a cross. Um, For many of his followers, it did. Literally. Romans 12, verse 4. Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, what? As a living sacrifice. That word sacrifice didn't lost any power. It's the same word. Put yourself on the altar. Do what Isaac did. 
put your hands out, lay down. Lord, you can have me. Do anything you want. I'll go anywhere you want. I'll follow you to anywhere, no matter what it costs. Because my body is your body now. I'm done. So I don't know about you, but this is one of those things that punches me in the gut every time. It hits my heart that God would love us this much. That God would care this much. And maybe that's because I know my past. And I don't know what past you're coming out of, but but I'm telling you right now today that he loves you this much. And I want to challenge you to give your life to him. I don't I, I know all of you on some level, and I'm sure probably most, if not all of you, have some form of relationship with him. But if you don't, like you have got to start it today. You have got to start it today. And it begins by literally saying, There's no more me. I'm done, Jesus, you can have me. No more fight. No more battle, no more argument. I'm done. You can have me. Stand up with me for a minute. We're going to sing a song here in just a second and close up. But I want you to know that the reason that, 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 that we sing the song at the end is, is to take a few minutes and let his word set in. Not my word, his word set in. And if there's anything you want to talk to me about, you can come up here and do it. Or you can come get me after. Uh, But I want to talk to you. If you need encouragement, if you need prayer, man, holler at me. If you need to give your life to Jesus, look, you don't have to have me to do that, but I would love to do it with you. But it's as simple as telling him, there's no more me, Jesus. It's only you. I know that my life is full of sin. I lay it on your altar. You can have me. I'm yours. I trust you. Even beyond death, I trust you. Let me pray. Lord, you are amazing and incredible. Thank you for your word, God, and I thank you again for the opportunity to open it and share it and grow in it. I pray today that you're glorified through it and that it impacts the way we live our lives today and throughout this week. And I, and I mean we, especially me. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.